Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre, all the sorrows grow on your wail. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology, retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I am your host and your Fireside bard. Welcome to episode number 44 of Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. We are coming to you as uh, as always from the beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network studio here in Dublin. It is a brand new year happy new year to each and every one of you this is the first episode i've been recording on the podcast in the new year and what an episode it is it's so so great to be back in the studio and to be finally doing the ton all roads have been leading to this we are in the midst of the ulster cycle there's no more preamble this is the meat and two veg of irish mythology right here the story of queen Maeve, of Cú cullen of the cattle raid of cooley over the past few episodes we've been doing a lot of the um i've said preamble already but like the prologue stories to the tawn which have included how the pangs of ulster came about how the bulls were begotten and the background of Cú cullen and his training and love all of which comes uh all of which is context for what we are about to get to now so if you haven't listened to those uh, maybe listen to them beforehand uh, but also they're not they're more colouring than anything. They're not at all essential because this is really where this story begins. Uh, the the Tawn is the longest and greatest story of Irish mythology and it is a novel. It is a novel length uh, story which I will be obviously doing in a few few parts in a few different episodes in a few chapter forms but I will in no way be able to go into the level of detail of some of my sources which are Thomas Kinsella's very much generation defining uh, edition of it um, which is and the legacy of Thomas Kinsella is that he is where we call it the Tawn from. Before that, it was Tawn Bocuna, which is the cattle raid of Cooley in Irish. But he was the first one to call it the Tawn, and which is what we now have taken into the lexicon and uh, what what it is just called now. So that really shows how much of the standard that Thomas Kinsella's edition is made aided in no small part by the fact that Louis Le Brocchi, uh, the great Irish artist did his uh, very famous illustrations, his uh, brush paintings to illustrate that edition of the Tawn. And together they make just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work that I would recommend anyone with any interest 
in further reading to to have a look at this and also at Kieran Carson who did a more recent Penguin Classics version of it in uh, about 15 years ago I think his version came out which is different and very faithful as well um, it's tight that version as well which is quite nice but this is my version that we're doing here this is the Fireside version which will be shorter considerably of course but it also won't be a Wikipedia synopsis of it. I will try, while trying to be faithful to Kinsel and to Carson and to other versions of the story, I've tried where possible just to have this, tell the story as I would tell it, as clear as water, as Phil Pullman would say. And I'd say let's get right down to it. We'll chat a bit more afterwards. This is part one of The Tawn on Fireside. <laughs> The Tawn, Part 1 The Pillow Talk Remember, Bob, no fear, no envy, no meanness. The words of Liam Clancy to Bob Dylan. It was all pillow talk. The greatest and bloodiest battle ever fought on this island all came from pillow talk. It was Maeve, the fierce warrior queen of Connacht, who lay in bed next to her husband, Alil, they had just finished ravishing each other and lay in a sweaty stew when husband playfully said to wife, You know, you're a lucky woman. What makes you say that? replied Maeve. Well, not only have you a fine husband in appearance and temperament, but with riches greater than the High King himself. I had riches plenty before I married you, said Maeve. That High King you mock is my father, Yucky Felix. And of his six daughters, I was the fiercest in battle and most giving in grace. As a reward, my father gave me the whole province of Connacht to rule, which I did on my own. And many suitors came, and each left without my hand. For what I demanded in a husband was more than any woman had asked before. And what was that? asked Alil. He was simultaneously beginning to regret having started this, but also loved watching Maeve go off on one. I sought a man with no fear, no envy, and no meanness, said Maeve with a wry smile. For I am giving and generous, so could not have had a scab for a husband. I am desired by all men, so a jealous man wouldn't have lasted very long. And I am always on the front lines in battle. How would it have looked if my husband was a coward? That is why I love you, Alil. You were a prince of Leinster. You could look me in the eye, match me in wits and in battle. You have courage, faith, and generosity. Who else could I have married except you? So you agree with me then? Asked a satisfied Alil. That you are the lucky one. I said you were a suitable husband. But I was already queen. I am no kept wife. If anything, you are a kept husband. This stung the Leinster man. Kept husband, with two kings for brothers, one over me, the other over Leinster. And they were only made kings because of the order they were born in. I claimed my kingship in a province that wasn't mine by birth. I had never heard of a woman as a king, so I came here to Connacht. And now that we are united in marriage, our rule is secure. 
All that's well and good, said Maeve. But still, I have greater riches. Let's find out, shall we, said Alil. And so it was that an index was taken of every single possession of Alil and Maeve's. From the diamond on the smallest ring to the turret of the tallest tower, not one thing was left unaccounted for. The armor of their soldiers, the weight of their livestock, all was ticked off and logged. And when the exhausting task was complete, by truly astonishing circumstances, it turned out that Alil was richer than Maeve by exactly one bull. But it was not just any bull. It was the mighty Finn Bannock, the white-horned. The bull had actually been born of one of Maeve's heifers, but had refused to be the property of a woman and had moved to graze in Alil's fields. Maeve had her servants scour every corner of every field, but no bull or heifer could match the size and ferocity of Finn Bannock. Maeve felt penniless. This one bull more that her husband now could gloat with had made all her riches hollow and worthless. So Maeve sent for her most trusted servant, Macroth. I don't care what it takes. Find me a bull equal or better than Finn Bannock. There is only one in Olivera, said Macroth. In Ulster, the kingdom of King Conchobar MacNassa, in the territory of Cooley, which is under a chieftain named Dara MacFiachna. Dara has a bull, I would argue, was even greater than Finn Banach. His name is Don Kuna, the brown bull of Cooley. Go seek this bull at once, cried a delighted Maeve. Tell Dara MacFiachna to loan me this bull for one year after which I will return it with an interest of fifty heifers. And tell him, if he delivers it himself, I'll give him a portion of Connacht lands bigger than his entire territory. And finally, tell him that he also may have the friendship of my thighs. And Macroth rode as hard and fast as he could before reaching the household of Dara Macfiechna in Cooley. The messenger went before the lord and repeated the queen's offers. Dara was so delighted, he began to bounce on his throne until he burst the cushion underneath. The Lord invited Macroth to stay the night for a great feast to celebrate this new partnership between Connacht and Ulster. There had been tension between the two provinces ever since Fergus Macroch had fallen out with Ulster King Conchobar MacNassa over the king's treatment of Deirdre and the sons of Ishnach. Fergus and his devoted followers had left Ulster and were in exile in the kingdom of Alil and Maeve, Connacht. So Dara Macfiachna's decision to loan one of the jewels of Ulster to the western Connacht men was controversial to say the least, but the chieftain was delighted with this new arrangement. I will be almost as rich as King Conchobar himself, thought Dara. But as the night got late and the wine continued to flow, the gossip began to fly. "'God, isn't Dara a great lad?' said one attendant. "'One of the greatest in Ulster, maybe second only to Conchobar,' said another. "'Conchobar, now there's a great man. No one could take from Conchobar what he didn't give willingly.' "'Yes, it was good of Dara to loan Duncuna, because it would have taken an army made of all four other provinces to take it from Ulster unwillingly.' Macroth 
happened to overhear this last part. I beg your pardon, he asked the drunken attendants. I'll have you know, Queen Maeve has been outrageously generous in her offer to your lord. But regardless of Dara McFeekna's answer, Duncuna would have been taken. As gossip always does, word of this came back around to Dara's ears. And when McRoth came back the next morning to retrieve the bull, he was refused. I've changed my mind. You may not have, Duncuna. And only for the taboo of not murdering messengers and guests, you would not leave here alive. And why is this? asked McRoth. Well, I heard you said that my permission is irrelevant, that one way or the other you would take my precious bull. Surely the drunken gossip of household staff is not worthy of the ears of a chieftain, said McGrath. I believe the words of my people. Now return to your woman, king, and tell her that she may keep the friendship of her own thighs. McGrath returned to Cruachan, to the kingdom of Queen Maeve, and told her what had happened. I failed you, my queen. Never mind that, my loyal friend, reassured Maeve. You were right in what you said. He could have had riches. He could have had the friendship of my thighs. Now he will feel the wrath of my blade. If I have to burn down all of Ulster, the brown bull of Cooley will be mine. And Anton Bokuna began. As for Alil, even though all of this had stemmed from he and Maeve's own quarrel, he did not question Maeve. She had been disrespected by Ulster. Everything else was irrelevant. So he mustered his armies while Maeve mustered hers. Alil also requested help from his brothers, Corpra in Tara and Finn in Leinster to send aid. And of course, Maeve also had the allegiance of Fergus MacRoke, former king of Ulster, and Conchobar MacNess's own son Cormac, both of whom led an entire host of Ulster exiles with a bloodlust against the current rule of their province. Before too long, the armies were assembled, nineteen legions of three thousand each, the warriors of four provinces, Connacht, Munster, Leinster and Meath, the largest ever assembled. They all met at Cruachan to plan their invasion of Ulster. This had already become about so much more than a bull. But Queen Maeve was also keen to remind everyone that the bull was what they were there to retrieve. The druids convinced the bloodthirsty warriors to await a sign from the gods before plunging into the horror of battle. Every day Maeve rode out in her chariot seeking this sign. She looked at the army that was at her command. I will be cursed by all those who are leaving loved ones behind, and cursed forever by those who are being left. Many may never be reunited, all because of loyalty to me and for the satisfaction of my own pride. As she considered this, before the Queen of Connacht came a small golden chariot pulled by two black stallions. At the reins was a beautiful young blonde woman. Her hair tied up, she wore a red cloak with golden clasps, and she was heavily armed. What is your name? asked Maeve. I am Fatham, and I am a poet of Connacht. I have just returned home after studying verse and vision in Alba. 
And tell me, continued Maeve, did you learn foresight while you were there? Indeed I did. Then tell me, what do you see in my future? How will this war end for me? In crimson and red, was the reply. Impossible, scoffed Maeve. Ulster is weak. Conquabar is weak. The birth pang still felt by every man in the province from Maka's curse has decimated their armies. We have a host from four provinces. We even have Ulster men fighting with us, Fergus MacRock and Conquabar's own exiled son Cormac. It is the greatest army ever assembled. How does it end in blood for us? I only tell what I see, said Fathom. For you, this war ends in crimson and red. Maeve then decided to take a different interpretation of this prophecy. Well, no army leaves battle unscathed. I'm not so naive to think no Connacht blood will be shed at all. But that does not necessarily mean victory for Ulster. You must see more. So Fathom continued. I do. I see a young man. The Hound of Ulster. There is no army you can build that will not fall by his sword. He is faster and stronger than a thousand men fighting as one. He has a weapon never seen before that no one survives. The gay Bulga. In a rage he enters a warp spasm, a form too terrifying and monstrous to even describe. You asked your future, and I tell no lie. Beware, Cucullin. Maeve was well and truly rattled. But what could she do? The armies had come. The die had been cast. And in the thousands of battles that had been fought in era, no one individual had ever defeated an army. Not even Lula of Oda or the Dagda. Maeve refused to accept the foresight of this young poet. Instead, the Queen of Connacht returned to Cruachan and told the assembled horde, The gods have spoken. We ride for Ulster. To be continued. And there we have part one of the Tawn on Fireside. And I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I had an absolute ball writing, adapting and telling it. This uh, this episode was actually a re-record. I recorded this the other day, which is why this is coming out a few days late. Um, we have a new system. We have a new computer system in the studio. And there was just some teething problems in getting it set up. And unfortunately, my uh, the podcast was recorded into the wrong microphone the other day. Uh, so unfortunately, it was unusable. But... So I came in today to re-record it before so that it could get out. So I hope, uh, thank you for your patience in waiting for it. And it was, hope it was worth the wait. It was definitely worth me doing it again uh, to get it right because this is so important and it's been such a joy to be writing and adapting the tone at last. It's what the year, the year has been leading up to and what a way to start 2020 and start a new year of Fireside than with than with the climax of Irish mythology. it's There's just so much here straight away. Um, first of all, we have 
we're finally meeting Queen Maeve, who I've been waiting to meet since starting this. She is she is the ultimate uh, she was one of the greatest characters full stop in Irish mythology and certainly possibly the greatest the greatest female character in in the pantheon uh, because it's it's worth noting that and this was this was a, an element that I hadn't realized myself even it's not just that she is this fearsome warrior queen she is the head of the province of Connacht, uh, which is a a role that up to this point no no woman had had been made, uh, you know, especially after doing the King Cycle, which I really enjoyed doing, and there was some great stories in it. But the fact that it was just King, 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 lad, 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 lad. Whereas here we have Alil, who is the King of Connacht, but he is. Maeve's husband. He is not king over her. It's almost a bit like how the uh, how the English crown is at the moment, with the queen being the head of state and Prince Philip not being allowed to be king, because that would imply that he was over her. So, in all, it almost you'd almost be tempted to refer to him as Prince Alan to imply that he wasn't higher. But we couldn't be doing that because then we'd be modelling Irish mythology after the British crown. And sure, Jesus, wouldn't that collapse in on itself and be a total oxymoron? Um, but Maeve is that quote at the beginning that I did uh, no fear, no envy, no meanness that anyone who knows me well or who saw my my one man musical Cassowary last, last winter will know that that is my favourite quote of all time which was said by Liam Clancy of the Clancy Brothers to Bob Dylan in the Gaslight Cafe in the early 1960s. That quote can be heard on No Direction Home, which is the documentary Martin Scorsese made about Bob Dylan. It is absolutely wonderful if you haven't. It's really long. It's about three and a half hours long. And it's just so much footage of just Dylan talking about himself and other people talking about Dylan. And if you're a Dylan fan, it's if you're a Dylan fan, you've almost definitely already seen it. Uh, but even if you're just a big music fan and have never really given a Bob Dylan a go, then check it out. It's brilliant. But I I would have grown up a huge Bob Dylan fan. He was the first one. He was more than the music. He was the first person that ever made me feel that having curly hair was cool and could be cool because I am, you know, I've seen pictures of me. I'm very much a curly Sue. Um... But when I got into my 20s, I discovered, I kind of came late to it, to coming home to Irish music. I wouldn't have been hugely into Irish music um, growing up, but I've become obsessed in the last couple of years, especially since um, starting to get more into the Irish mythology and the folklore. It has been my own very personal Celtic revival, very much so. And you can imagine my joy to discover that Bob Dylan was incredibly influenced by the Clancy Brothers and was very good friends with them in the 60s and throughout life as well and modelled, they thought that Liam Clancy was the greatest ballad singer of all time. And in No Direction Home, there's an interview with Bob Dylan where he's talking about Liam Clancy and he said that there was one night that Liam leaned over to him after about 30 pints of Guinness and said, remember Bob, no fear, no envy, no meanness. And I loved that quote so much that I basically built a show around that quote because I just thought that that was really, that's really everything, you know. 
if you could achieve just those three things, that wouldn't be a bad go at life, would it? If you could have courage, <clears throat> if you could not be jealous, if you could be happy in your own life, and if you could not be horrible to other people, if you could not be mean, or you can afford any kind of generosity, I couldn't think of anything else that you'd need. Um, now, of course, that means that's a great, great challenge. You'd be try striving an entire life to try and emulate that. But I just thought this was profound words plucked from Liam, by Liam Clancy from somewhere. But imagine my surprise when uh, I was reading Kieran Carson's adap adaptation of The Thorn for the first time a couple of years ago, only to discover in the first chapter, in the pillow talk between Queen Maeve and King Alil, that Queen Maeve loves Alil because he is free, he does not have fear, he does not have envy, and he does not have meanness. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it that that's where it was from. So the idea of the marriage of Irish folk music and Irish mythology cemented this quote as my favourite quote of all time. And I adore it so much and love that that is at the crux of Queen Maeve and King Alil's relationship, that that is why she loves him. That is what she demanded in her husband, because that is what she was herself. It needs She needed someone who could match her in those three elements. And the fact that this, to talk for a moment about, apologies if you're listening to this in a car with smallies, with young children, the sex of the thorn. Lady Gregory, who has been a gospel of mine for all of the folktales and myths up to this point, she was one of the first to adapt the thorn and centered it around Cucullin, but her adaptation is not really rated among fans of this material because it is heavily sanitized. It is very much like the version we would have heard in school um, that a lot of Irish children would have heard at some stage from a particularly kooky or eccentric teacher at some stage in primary school. When I was doing this, when I was adapting this first episode, I had just a flash of a memory. I had forgotten when abouts it was in school that I first started hearing these stories. And I had a vivid memory of being in second class at the age of eight and watching a really poorly animated version of the Thorn on a TV. It was one of those um, very primitive animation styles where like, it's a still image that just kind of moves from left to right. I remember the images of the bulls in that. of, And I remember specifically uh, like an image of a bull going down on the ground. So that was obviously where I heard it. But it's not a part of any syllabus or curriculum. It's just, it's just a thing that primary school teachers can teach by their own whim, you know and they can choose to do it or not and that's why so many Irish people would have a vague knowledge of so much of this material but not wouldn't know any kind of detail at all and was one of the main reasons I wanted to start this podcast but the sex and violence of this story is something that has been in it since its origins in old Irish and since it was told orally throughout the centuries like it was written down it's thought for the first time I think about the 12th century but it's been circulating they think since about the 8th or 9th century so it's over a thousand years old this story and in those earliest versions parts of which have survived the sex and the blood is there and it starts in a post-sexual place it starts with pillow talk that's literally the name of the chapter even i've combined the first couple of chapters with this first part 
but it starts from pillow talk of this argument between husband and wife this very pedestrian thing that explodes into the greatest and biggest and bloodiest battle in in Irish mythology and starts and that's why it's almost if you were to try and summarise the the tone it's almost a slightly confusing start in that the quarrel is between husband and wife and yet the war ends between ends up being with husband and wife and a third party being between Maeve and Ulster all because she wanted this bull to match her husband which makes it interesting straight away and unlike anything else I know straight away but is uh, you can understand how it would be a confusing start to try and explain and I hope I've been clear as I could be with that because it is becomes Maeve's keen, keen to make sure it's still about just the bull it's the bull that she wants but it is about so much more than that and it is the amalgamation of everything and like all of the stories that we've been telling up to now particularly over the last month or two with the uh, prologue stories to the Tawn like the of of Cucullan and of the pangs of Ulster and of how the bulls were begotten, they all are referenced in this first part here. This is what they all lead to. And again, it's not essential that you have had those stories or that you've listened to those, but they just add so much colour and richness to the world, to the extended universe of the Ulster cycle, um, which just makes personally made for a much better writing experience and I hope it's made for a better listening experience those of you who are up to date and who have uh, on the podcast and who have listened to all the episodes I hope that you feel that it is a, a wider world you're a part of now that these don't exist these cycles the four Irish cycles even though they are all separate I hope you do feel that they do all occupy the same world and they are referenced together and and I just hope that you uh, are still enjoying that and and feel that something's different here because this story is different. This story has so many more sources and has novel-length sources, which is something that so many incredible Irish stories have been robbed of in not being expanded at all. This one has been expanded and expanded upon and is why it's the most famous of them all and possibly the greatest of all. So there is so much more detail to it, a lot of detail that I won't be able to do, but I still wanted to... This may be four, maybe five parts. It may be more than that. I would hope that it wouldn't be more than about four or five episodes to tell my version of this story anyway, which will be shorter, obviously, than novel length, but I still hope will be feel detailed and personal and that it'll be my clearest version of this story while still paying certain attention to what I feel makes the story unique, um, such as this pillow talk and of this messenger going to Cooley and this gossip that circulates back around like this is this is beautiful detailed stuff that is such a that is such a joy to experience and I hope is for you as well and I hope it was more clear than that previous rant there but uh, before I head off um I want to just say, in case anyone was wondering, because for a couple of weeks I had been promising a Christmas episode, which people will have noticed that there hasn't been an episode of Fireside for a couple of weeks. There was meant to be a Christmas episode, and it was recorded, but um, as everyone, uh, but Headstuff 
uh, took its holidays, its well-deserved holidays after the incredible 2019 that it had had, uh, opening the new studio and everything. And so the studio was on lockdown for the couple of weeks and uh, the Christmas episode didn't get a chance to be edited. So because of that, by the time it, it was ready to go, uh, it had the time had passed and we felt that... It pro- there was no point in releasing a Christmas episode in January if it wouldn't be listened to. So it is, it does exist, and who knows, we may be able to re-record or re-release it next Christmas. But that is what happened there. If anyone was looking forward to a Christmas episode, I do apologise there. But we are back with a bang, and we are back and ready to work harder than ever. I'm so excited to see what 2020 brings for Fireside. Big plans, big plans to expand across other platforms while also hopefully can making the podcast bigger and better and the best that it possibly can be um i don't think there's anything else so i will wrap up there next week we will continue the tawn we will have part two where we will have the old armies collected armies of 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 munster and connacht and leinster and meath finally facing off and meeting Cullen himself So I hope you'll all enjoy it and I'll see you all next time and you'll hear me by the fireside. Thank you very much and goodbye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.